You're listening to Rates and Lanes with Rico Mohammed. This is the show where we improve your knowledge of the freight market, improve your bottom line, and improve the transportation industry as a whole. We're talking rates and lanes. Let's move on down the audio road. Good evening, everyone. This is Rico Mohammed coming to you from Atlanta, Georgia tonight. Want to uh, welcome everybody on board. I know it's been a little while since we had a show. Um, had a couple of things come up over the past couple of weeks, but we're here tonight. We're running live. We got our special guest, Mr. Hank Seaton. We're going to bring him on here in a little bit to take any and all of your transportation law questions. I know that there's a lot of activity that's been going on from uh, coming down with the different regulations that are coming into effect from the uh, hiring law that they pushed through and also with the new um, the ELD mandate also being finalized and, and going, getting ready to get pushed through. We're going to get Hank's uh, take, take on a couple of those issues and also any questions that you may have surrounding transportation law or any kind of transportation uh, legal questions that you may have. Just go ahead and press number one, put yourself in the phone, in the queue, and we will be right over to grab you and take your question and bring you up live. But we start off tonight as we normally do. We're going to jump over into the USDA truck rate, fruit and vegetable truck rate report for this week, November the 18th. And there's a little bit of movement that is taking place on the USDA truck rate report. We have a couple of markets that are reporting some shortages, and we also have a couple of uh, one market reporting a major shortage of trucks. And that one market that is reporting major shortage of trucks that need trucks in that area is in the Minnesota, North Dakota, Red River Valley area. Uh, I'm not too familiar with that area. I, I do not run up that way, um, but there seems to be some opportunity to be had in that region of the country. I know they're going through a little bit of weather things up that way as well, so that may also be having an effect on why they have a slightage of trucks up that way. Um, slight shortages are being reported in the Idaho, Merrill County, Oregon area, as well as eastern North Carolina, Columbia Basin, Washington, and central Wisconsin. Those four areas in particular are showing a uh, slight shortage. Some areas that you might want to stay away from, or if you're going into those areas, you might want to take your backhaul with you. Central and South Florida, that goes without saying. West District, Florida, of course, uh, those areas are showing slight surpluses of trucks. And these next three areas are showing outright surpluses of trucks. So once again, take your backhaul with you or make sure that you've got something lined up that it's worth going in there for. Uh, the rate that you're going to be coming back out of if you work in the spot market. Those markets are South District, California, San Luis Valley, Colorado, and Mississippi. All of those areas are showing surpluses right now. So just kind of tread and be wary if you're going into those areas. I will get the link put up on the Rates and Lanes Facebook page for this report if you want to Click on over there and see it firsthand for yourself. We'll have it posted up over there in just a second. But no, without no further ado, we're going to move right on over into the DAT trend lines report for the week of November 8th through the 14th. Demand increased for reefers last week and rates rose in a number of key markets, but the national average reefer rate dropped two cents. National reefer rates also fell two cents per mile for vans and flatbeds. So we're going to go and take a deeper look into the USDA trend lines report, starting off with the van, uh, the national van demand and capacity report for the 8th through the 14th. Van load postings were steady up by 0.5%, and the truck postings increased 3.7%, yielding a 3.1 decline in the load-to-truck ratio. After rounding, however, the ratio held at least Held at least at 1.6 loads per truck, the national average van rate lost two cents per mile. Van loads postings dropped 11% in October compared to September. Capacity added 8.5%, which led to an 18% decline in the load to truck ratio from 1.8 down to 1.5 loads per truck. Compared to the typical October 2014, the ratio has declined. 
47% over that time span. Moving on over into the U.S. van rates for week of November 8th through the 14th, the national average van rate slipped two cents to $1.70 per mile on the spot market. Outbound rates fell in Memphis and in Los Angeles, despite the higher volumes in those areas. The national average van rate in October was down three cents when compared to the average rate in September at $1.71 per mile. The national rate was 30, 30 cents below where it was in October 2015, with a $0.21 cents of that coming from a few coming from the fuel surcharge, the declining fuel surcharge over that time, time span. Checking in across the country, we're going to start out in the northeastern portion of the United States. The average drive van rate coming out of Philadelphia shows an average rate of $1.72 per mile. Moving down into the southeastern portion of the United States, we have Atlanta checking in, showing an average of $1.72 per mile. Moving up into the Midwest, coming out of Chicago, the average rate coming out of Chicago shows $1.99 per mile. Moving into South Central portion of the United States, Dallas, Texas, checks in, shows an average rate of $1.54 per mile. And moving out to the left coast, the west coast, we have also coming out of the City of Angels, Los Angeles, checking in, showing a $1.99 per mile average for dry van freight. Moving on to the U.S. flatbed demand and capacity report. For the week of the 18th through the 14th, flatbed availability on the spot market fell 16.7%, and truck posts were up 8.9%. That pushed the national load-to-truck ratio down 23.5% from 8.1 to 6.2 loads per truck. The national average flatbed rate fell $0.02. Cents. Flatbed load postings dropped 4.3% in October, and capacity added 1.7%. Compared to September, the resulting load-to-truck ratio declined 8.9% from 10.5 to 9.9 loads per truck compared to the unusual high demand of October 2014. The ratio has declined 54.8% over that time span. Moving into the rates for flatbeds. Flatbed rates on the spot market averaged $1.95 per mile nationally, down $0.02 cents from the previous week. Flatbed rates in October fell $0.03 cents from the average in September compared to October 2014. The total rate of $2 per mile is down $0.33, cents, which included a $0.23 cent decline in the average fuel surcharge. Average rates coming in from across the country, beginning up in the northeastern portion of the United States, we have Harrisburg checking in at $3.10 per mile for flatbeds on average. We have an average rate coming out of Atlanta showing $2.21 for flatbed. That is the southeastern portion of the United States. Moving into the midwestern portion of the United States, coming out of Rock Island, we have an average rate of $2.09 per mile for flatbeds. Moving down into the south central portion of the United States, Houston, Texas, checks in at $2.05 per mile on average for flatbed freight. And coming out of the west coast, Phoenix, Arizona, shows an average rate for flatbeds moving right now at $1.75 per mile on average. Moving on over into the reefer demand and capacity report through the 14th, reefer load capacity, excuse me, Reefer load post increased another 6.4%, and truck capacity rose 1.9%. As a result, the load-to-truck ratio rose 4.4% from 3.9 up to 4.1 loads per truck. But the national average reefer rate still slipped $0.02. Cents. And if you kind of remember back to where I, I, I normally talk about, there's a magic number for a lot of these reports. Uh, for the load-to-truck ratios, and reefers kind of edging a little bit closer to that magic number of five. Um, still a little sparse out here for um, for a lot of reefer freight on the spot market. But the closer we get to that uh, number of five loads per truck, the better the rates will start to become um, in the supply and demand portion of, of markets throughout the country. Reefer load availability on the spot market declined 16.5% in October when compared to September. The capacity increased 2.4% from 
As a result, the load to truck ratio fell 18.5% from 4.7 down to 3.8 loads per truck. Compared to the typical results from October 2014, the ratio has declined 53.5% over that time frame. Let's move over and see how the reefer rates are performing. For the week of November 8th through the 14th, the national average reefer rates dipped two cents to $1.92 per mile, but prices were up in the Northeast, Southern Florida, and Southern Idaho. Rates Reefer rates in October dropped seven cents from the September national average compared to the October 2014 reefer spot market rates are down 31 cents due in large to a 21 cents drop in the average fuel surcharge. Moving out throughout the country, we're going to start off in the northeastern portion of the United States. We have average rates for reefers coming out of Elizabeth, New Jersey, showing $1.76 per mile on average. Coming out of Lakeland, Florida, showing an average moving down into the southeastern portion of the United States. Lakeland, Florida reports rates moving at $1.39 per mile on average. Moving up into the Midwest, coming out of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Green Bay seems to always be a really good market coming out for reefers, showing $2.67 per mile on average coming out of Green Bay. Moving down into the south central portion of the United States. McAllen, Texas, checks in, showing an average rate of $1.68 per mile. Moving out to the West Coast, Fresno, California, is showing us an average rate of $1.83 per mile coming out of the West Coast portion of the United States. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up this week's trend trend lines report from DAT. And that clears the way for us to go and see if we can get our guests Mr. Hank Seaton on board with us. Let's see if we got Hank available. Hank's traveling tonight. So, Hank, are you there? I am here. Uh, good good to have you on with us again tonight, Hank. Uh, we appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule, going through the airport and everything. Um, what's been going on here lately on your end of the world? Can, can you give us kind of give us a little progress report on, yeah, on the, what's going on on your end? The major, the major issue this week is the highway bill. Uh, that's uh, the major clarion call to action. There are a few issues that have a particular uh, effect upon uh, our listeners, and I'll be happy to talk to you about them and uh, what maybe we can do something about it. Well, yeah, I know that one thing that we were definitely uh, seeing that coming out of the Howie Bill was this uh, new Howie Bill hiring standards, and, and they're talking about roughly we could be losing close to Half a million carriers could lose business over this new highway bill, the hiring standards on that. You, you want to elaborate a little yeah, further on that? A, yeah, absolutely. This is an example of no good deed goes on. The uh, Transportation Intermediaries Association ill-advisedly, I believe, proposed a hiring standard for carriers. Uh, as they proposed it, shippers and brokers would not be subject to negligent selection suits if they hired a carrier that was licensed, authorized, and insured on behalf of seven or eight uh, small uh, or associations of small trucking companies, we tried to intercede with them to suggest that that was a bad idea because under existing law and a lawsuit that we prevailed upon, the law is if the agency says you're certified to operate, you should be certified to use, and the agency's decision should trump state law. Well, the TIA did not understand that, and they proceeded to uh, try to get the legislation through Congress. As it came out of the highway bill on the House side, it currently is only an interim hiring standard, i.e. it's only in place for 26 months, and it would immunize shippers and brokers from suit only if they used a carrier who is ranked as satisfactory. Now, the vast majority of carriers, uh, any carrier who's been in business for 18 months and just passed the new carrier audit, uh, I think 95% of the carriers are ranked as unrated, and unrated is the equivalent of a satisfactory safety rating. So the bill is passed would uh, make unrated carriers uh, uh, unable to get jobs from shippers and brokers because they'd only be immunized if they hired satisfactory carriers, everybody 
except maybe a few ambulance chasers recognize that satisfactory only would have a devastating effect upon uh, uh, transportation. So a proposed fix for that is that they would immunize shippers and brokers if they hired unrated and satisfactory carriers. That effectively would throw under the school bus anybody who has a conditional safety rating. And a conditional safety rating is not hard to get. Any auditor who wants to spend a little time investigating a carrier can probably slap a, a, a conditional on them. There are now 10,972 carriers that have a conditional rating and more coming every week. So on behalf of eight or nine trade associations uh, starting last month, we uh, started a bit of a lobbying effort to suggest to Congress that that is totally unfair, that there's no judicial appeal or conditional carriers, and that they should simply do away with the hiring standard in the House bill altogether, or at least be sure that safe to operate is safe to use. As we speak now, uh, there are bills, two bills, one passed in the House, one passed in the Senate, that will have to go to reconciliation this week. What will come out of reconciliation, we really don't know. Either they will adopt the good portions of both the Senate and the House bill and do away with the interim hiring standard. They'll leave the interim hiring standard as it is, which will be devastating, or uh, they'll throw conditional carriers under the school bus and exclude them from the interim hiring standard. I can't predict the answer. All I can say is any small carrier or any person who believes in competition, uh, open and free competition, uh, should uh, write their congressman or their senators and say, kill the interim hiring standard or ensure that any carrier that the agency says is fit to operate is fit to use. Uh, we've been trying to uh, start a grassroots uh, uh, letter-writing campaign in that uh, regard, but uh, unlike the powerful trade associations, we haven't spent any money uh, on anybody's campaign, and it has to be entirely grassroots. So uh, if you get that, that's my major plea for the night to the listeners. It, it certainly is, and then there are about two or three other issues that we need to cover as well. Okay, well, well, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and dive into it. Uh, you got the floor right, right now. Let's this, yeah, the second the second issue is the so-called uh, uh, denim amendment. It uh, uh, is basically aimed at uh, some abusive uh, procedures that are coming into California law, and the tendency of certain states to want to uh, change the hours of service, the method of pay. Uh, put in state law that's absolutely impossible to enforce on a multi-state operation. Uh, some of the things that California has been trying to get away with, it's not just meal and rest breaks that play hell with a driver's clock, but also the idea that a, uh, an owner-operator or driver could not be compensated on a, on a per mile or percentage basis. Everybody would have to be by the hour and be subject to uh, a time and a half for overtime. Uh, the Denim Bill basically says that no state can make a rule regarding employment law that's inconsistent with the federal law. And under the federal law, we currently have, if you're required to log under the 70-hour or 80-hour rule, that trumps uh 50 states all having different rules. And uh, the amendment needs to be reinforced to keep California from really becoming its own nation and to allow the independent contractor model to continue to succeed and people to be paid based upon their productivity, not how long they stand around with their hand on a shovel. So uh, I think that uh, everyone who is uh, uh, pro business. Uh, is supporting the Denim Amendment. Uh, there are uh, certain labor groups that are not. Uh, 
can imagine uh, those people who are already organized uh, and and the Teamsters who have work rules that uh, limit productivity would like to see those work rules applied across the industry. So they are opposing it. It passed the House. It needs to pass reconciliation and go to the Senate uh, and the House for confirmation. Uh, I don't think Obama would veto whatever the Senate and the House did. But in this whole world of compromise, although you would think pro-business types are in control of both the Senate and the House, there's still a whole lot of uh, negotiating and backing and trading that has to be done uh, to get a highway bill. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, you know, they say if you like hot dogs, you don't want to see how sausage is made. If you think you like uh, laws, you don't need to see how Congress makes them because lots of times uh, what may be something that really affects you gets left by the wayside because somebody else wants double bottoms. Uh, and that, uh, unfortunately, uh, is uh, kind of what's going on. And, you know, it's important if you don't, uh, uh, if you don't stand up and be counted here in the next few days, uh, you may not get a law that you like. So the Dunham Amendment is probably the second thing that's of particular interest. And the final thing, something that's really more of a killer than anything else is, so we're finally going to get a highway bill. So after eight years, <laughs> we're going to get a long-term appropriation that might actually fix the highways. But how in the hell are we going to pay for it? Uh, I think most people in industry uh, would think that uh, in God's province, the cost of fuel is down. Uh, the industry is prepared to take a fuel surcharge that uh, uh, is compensatory uh, to the trucking industry for the cost of fuel. So I think most people say, yeah, let's go ahead and take a fuel tax. Just be damn sure they don't rate it, rate it for something else and use that as a way to fund the highways. But there's a problem with that. problem with that is a lot of our otherwise right-thinking conservative uh, Tea Party folks have taken the pledge, no new taxes. So they don't oh, yeah. they'd like to see the highways fixed, but they don't want to pay for it. Right. The proposal to pay for this thing right now is to raid the surplus that uh, the Fed has got for a rainy day fund. And most economists say, what? You know, let's face it, uh, uh, the reason that we don't have inflation, the reason that we're faring is better than some of the countries around the world, not because Obama's creating jobs and the economy's humming, but because we've got a strong enough financial system that the Fed can do its number and keep interest rates low so that people can afford to buy equipment and cars. Uh, uh, most folks I know would say money out of the bank and not call it a loan uh, is, uh, is, is, is a disguise, you know? We owe, we owe uh, uh, what is it, $17 trillion to folks but we got some money in the bank, so they take the money out of the bank and put it in the highways, and that would just throw us further out of kilter. So, uh, you know, we talk about a highway bill, and we talk about these issues that would affect us in terms of our productivity. It still remains to be seen in the macro issue. If we're going to get a highway bill, and if we are, are we going to be uh, physically responsible in terms of funding it? Or are we going to get to January and people say, well, now, do we, uh, do we cut Obamacare and Social Security? Or do we just decide we can't fund those highways that we've, uh, that we've said we were? So with, with, with all of that encouragement tonight, aren't you glad you invited Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, and I knew that we would definitely get into get to the bottom of a couple of things with, by bringing you on because – we can always depend on you keeping your ear to the grindstone as far as what's going on is coming out from Capitol Hill and everything else. We got somebody that uh, has their hand raised and want to get in and ask a question with us earlier tonight, so we're going to go ahead and uh, 
bring that caller on. Caller calling in from the uh, 715 area code. You're on live with Rico and Hank. How can we help? Yeah, hi, guys. Uh, good evening. I Maybe kind of a dumb question, and but I just kind of was wondering, you know, I, I seem like I recall when the uh, whole Obamacare debate was going on that the the constitutionality of it was based on a tax and not um, – the problem with it was that it was – can the government compel you to purchase a product? And I, I'm kind of, it's maybe a dumb question. Maybe somebody, I'm sure they've thought of it, but with the ELDs, can the government compel you to purchase a product? Yeah, it, it's a, it's, it, it is, a, it is a, a little bit of a horse of a different color. The issue of could the government in enforce you as a, an individual to buy health care for your own protection and tell okay, you sure. that you, yeah, you had to do it was, a, was a, a, an invasion of your right to privacy and your personal rights. The ELD comes in because they say that driving on the highways is not really a right, it's a privilege, and that uh, uh, the safety of others uh, trumps uh, your individual rights. Okay. Kind of yeah, like that, makes, saying, that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, the same thing applies to uh, uh, to speed limiters. Uh, you know, sure. they're, they're not far off from saying you're not going to be able to drive your truck at 80 miles an hour, although the four-wheeler can. And, you know, they'll probably get away with speed limiters because we're regulated a whole lot easier than they would if they were going to in, enforce that on everybody who had a Corvette. Do you, you see you see the distinction? I don't think we yeah, can get yeah. very very far, uh, uh, you know, uh, on that. Uh, obviously, if we had our druthers, uh, you know, I, I've got one of those uh, uh, VW diesel Passats, and I get 44 miles a gallon, and it's got pickup, and I love it. But uh, you know, uh, because it pollutes, uh, they're going to force me to. Uh, you know, put some kind of regulator on it, I guess. So, you know, it's a balance of your rights and the public's rights that uh, is is part of that test. Sure. All right. Yep, that was all I had. Okay. All right. Thank you. We appreciate it. Well, he kind of touched in on the other issue that I was going to bring up, uh, you know, with the other piece of the the e-law rule clears the White House and set for publication. probably sometime later on this month. Uh, that was the other thing I was going to get into a little bit tonight, but he, he kind of beat me to the punch. Um, what, what, are, what is your take on this new ELD mandate uh, as far as the, with the transportation industry is concerned? What are some different nuances that make that, that you think may come about? I, I know you still got two, two uh, there's two years before after it's, after it's published, uh, put into the federal registry that you still got two years before it actually becomes a requirement, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I I understand the libertarian notion, and it is libertarian. It's it's almost something Rand Paul would uh, would support to say <laughs> that a uh, that uh, an EOBR is an invasion of privacy. Uh, can see that as a stretch, but let's let's realize that an EOBR doesn't really measure whether or not you're fatigued. It doesn't measure your bowel rhythms. It measures how far the truck you drive goes. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think when you, uh, the aspects of that, when the spy in the sky says that you're at a strip club and maybe you don't want people to know you're there, then there may be an issue with it. But the, the idea that uh, it's measuring productivity in the location of the truck uh, is, is, is probably not a bridge too far. I think there are issues, though, involving telematics, which is the new buzzword. I was uh, uh, stepped in for a minute uh, at the CCJ forum to hear uh, uh, David Owen debate Lane Kidd, which uh, was truly interesting. That's a question of one guy who represents small carriers versus one guy who represents the alliance of large carriers. And it was very clear that the large carriers support 
telematics, front and rear facing cameras and uh, right. all kinds of additional things. Now, frankly, I, I can understand the insurance company saying, well, uh, if we got a camera facing the driver, it'll make it easier for them to settle uh, uh, lawsuits. But uh, it's also going to capture every fart and every burp. And I just think that to have a camera on you during your entire working hours uh, is, is, is probably uh, offends my libertarian streak. So I, I am concerned that, that telematics can go can go too far. Uh, and where that balance and tipping point is, I don't know. I will say this. Uh, when uh, ELDs came down, uh, they were called EOBRs, uh, a lot of us looked at it and said, well, you know, that is just an old-school strategy with the new technique because we were talking about uh, tachographs on trucks in the 70s to uh, to measure RPMs and trucks were running as a way to avoid the paper log. And part of our issue for all this time has been that to impose any kind of technology, particularly on uh, owner-operators or people who hold older equipment was uh, uh, an aberrant uh, financial burden. The fact is they've got these uh, ELDs and the technology cost down to the point it's not a major one. David said in his debate, and I think he was right, that strong argument could be made uh, for using the ELDs as a way to avoid the paper log, as a way to be in better compliance, and as a smart move for business to make, but that mandating it still still seemed like government saying they knew better than the than the than the carrier. Uh, personally, uh, having fought the fight with SMS methodology and hours of service violations, uh, I think that the, the smart money would get an ELD and uh, learn to live within the rules. Uh, part of that, though, goes this extra limit. Uh, the ELD is going to mean, and everything else is going to mean, that there is not going to be any common sense in safety anymore. Uh, the dirty little fact is, if you were 75 miles from home uh, or, or whatever, uh, people weren't as uh, precise in filling out their paper logs as the ELD captures them. So let's face it, uh, people ran two logbooks and all of that, and they weren't criminals. They weren't necessarily tired, but it puts some flexibility into an inflexible system. The ELD makes the system inflexible, and that lack of flexibility results in a cost, and that cost is going to have to be borne by the shippers. And by that, right. I mean mandatory detention and no more of this. you got to deliver at 6 a.m. or come back two weeks. Because the other edge of that is this new coercion rule that's coming in that says that if a shipper or a broker uh, coerces or forces a driver to exceed the hours of service, they can be subject to the $11,000 fine, and the truck driver can rat on the shipper. Now, you know, quite frankly, I think that ought to be a wake-up call to all of these uh, uh, wholesale groceries that say, well, we know we got it loaded late out of the field, and it's probably hot. Yeah. If you don't get it to Hunts Point, New York, by 7 a.m., you bought yourself a load of potatoes. Uh, I think those days uh, will quickly come to an end, and, well, they should because you can't give the, a driver a Hobson's choice of uh, – of having to uh, uh, stay over the weekend, miss another pickup, do all the rest of this stuff because the shipper wants to micromanage the floor plan of his warehouse and leave a $130,000 asset and a driver on the clock in his front yard. So I think, I, I think you're going to see uh, the ELD when it gets in place and when there isn't any flexibility in it, uh, uh, spinning downstream, that time is money to truckers, and there's no flexibility. Right. So 
you better unload the guy when he gets there. If that means you run a second, third ship, Mr. Shipper, it's a whole lot easier than lining trucks up around waiting for the, the bell to ring in the morning. Yeah, because I'm thinking that, you know, I'm I'm really thinking that it, this is going to lead to a lot of price increases across the board uh, because this is going to have to, when 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 the rubber meets the road, so to speak, when this thing hits, you know, after it gets implemented, there's going to have to be, there's going to be a trickle-down effect from, like you just stated about it, there's going to have to be mandatory detention policies in place because there's been uh, a lot of free labor that's been gained from the use of paper laws. And, you know, not, not to get into, not to try to uh, um, skirt the issue at all, but just being honest and being real about it, you know, uh, there there's a, been a ton of free labor gained by people just being well, able to, to when, have when a little you, bit of you, flexibility when, when with you, that. When you, when you take sleep or birth out, you take any kind of flexibility out, and you regiment the driver to the extent that the ELD plus the the agency does that, you know, you you violated by a few minutes, you're unemployable versus uh, uh, versus the the mandatory delivery uh, system. Something simply got to give, uh, and uh, you know you can't you can't make up that productivity loss on the back of a driver with an ELD. Now, one other thing that I think is quickly becoming an issue is distribution is changing. Uh, if this ELD comes in and shippers don't change their way of doing it, the idea of a line haul driver uh, uh, sitting around in L.A. for a day to wait to get to unload doesn't work. And it's almost going to encourage uh, line haul people operating between terminals and the old idea of having pickup and delivery so that, uh, you know, you've got a, a, a local guy uh, spotting equipment for the line haul guy to come in and pick up so that he doesn't kill time, you know, trying to find a place to sleep in downtown L.A. And that that looks a whole lot more like the old regular route ships that we had 30 years ago but there are some people who say that the idea of the efficiency of the independent contractor who are a small carrier who makes uh, on one end of the country and two or three deliveries on the other uh is, is going to be compromised in all of this and uh you know i i'd, I'd hate to think that's the case but uh uh, you know, some people are saying, uh, you know, you almost got to go back to kind of a Pony Express kind of thing where, you know, uh, you, you plan it out for the driver so he gets, you know, 550 miles a day on a uh, on an interstate, bunks over and goes 550 back in the other direction. Everything becomes sort of a semi-dedicated, which, uh, you know, isn't a... Uh, isn't the old night of the road system that uh, uh, has characterized uh, you know traditional trucking? And it's kind of funny how really all these issues that we talked about tonight they really are really tied at the hip to one another because you know with this ELD mandate you know if you start getting over a certain threshold and then that puts you in that hiring standard uh, uh, conundrum you know it's it's uh, it really quickly can become a, a man. It can be really hairy for the small guy, you know. If you only yeah, and I, you know, I'll days. tell you, I'll tell you, it's a, it's insidious uh, how this SMS methodology penalizes the small guy, and part of the reason is the law of large numbers. If you're a small guy and you happen to be in the wrong place uh, twice and get rear-ended, your percentage score and crash looks awful. Uh, if you get roughed up at one scale, uh, your uh, uh, your hours of service rules can go through the roof. Uh, where the large carriers don't seem to have that problem because they've got thousands of drivers to spread that anomaly over. It's kind of like I say that the house always wins at roulette because people play enough. Uh, if well, you go thinking you're going to make it. There's a, there's a... There's another thing that, that comes along with that that I see as far as, you know, my travels. 
uh, me being out here every day, day in and day out, when I go by the scale house or even on TC, uh, DOT with roadside inspections pulling guys over, I don't never see, I, I have yet to see them pull over any of the big major carriers. I hardly ever see any of the major carriers out behind the scale house. It's always Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. That's because they use the system to profile, and your ISS score is in part based on the fact that they don't. If they haven't stopped you enough to rate you, they're going to stop you for the hell out of it. And the other thing is, there is there is a premium on looking at older equipment rather than than new equipment in uh, uh, in equipment maintenance. But you're absolutely right that we're targeted for more inspections. You can look at the number of inspections per unit for small carriers versus the number of inspections for large carriers, and you can see the difference. Uh, I'll tell you two other things that uh, uh, would increase the reason for any small carrier owner operator to uh, uh, join the move to say SMS needs to go. And that is, uh, I was at a, I made a presentation to one of the little trade associations I represent, and I was explaining how totally corrupted SMS was in terms of not measuring safety. And I was followed by a major insurance company who said, look, we don't want SMS methodology to go because we use it to determine premiums. And if we don't have SMS methodology, how are we going to rate the small carriers? And I thought to myself, well, how in the hell did you rate them before SMS came around? You rated them based upon their loss runs. Uh, and, you know, for you to say that you're going to use SMS methodology to determine what to charge people for insurance is saying that a small carrier who has fluctuating scores could very easily pay four thousand uh, dollars uh, on the good side during a good year, and the next year have it go to eight, ten, twenty, or not even be underwritten and not have had an accident. And unfortunately, with a lot of newbies, I'm seeing uh, the ability to get and retain insurance to have a crippling effect. So now we say that safety is not about the agency getting bad actors off the road. It's about scores equating to what you pay for insurance and scores equating to your access to freight. And at that point, we've, we've uh, uh, changed the whole dynamics of the role of operating safe into it being a major competitive factor in your ability to get in business, stay in business, and get freight. And that's just very simply not what it's intended to do. Right, right. And we got quite a few callers on tonight. I just want to remind everybody. Okay, let's take some. I've got a lot of if, if you didn't hear at the beginning, well, we're waiting on some people. We get, we got quite a few on the line, but no one really has their hand raised. So if you got a question for Hank Seaton or myself, go ahead and press number one, and we can get you right up and on board. But no, Hank, we, we're waiting on them. We got a lot of people listening but I guess that means we're doing a good job on trying to uh, disseminate and explain what's been going on and what's coming down the pike out here. Uh, well, I think uh, we question? don't have questions. It's usually a problem. The take home tonight is uh, I'm going to give you a uh, a website. And I'll just give it to you. Uh, it's uh, MCRR. That's like in, in, in motor carrier regulatory reform, MCRR.net. You can visit that. You can see yeah, .net. You can visit that. You can see grow small business initiatives, and you can very easily fill out your name, your address, and say you support an initiative, and your congressmen and senators will be notified of your position. So it's it's open and it's free. It's supported by free trade associations, and uh, you know it's a way that uh, you can send your message to Washington. And then, you know, you can't say you didn't try. MCRR.net. Yes. Okay, I'm putting a link to that website up on the Rates and Lanes Facebook page right now. 
uh, I'll have it up there. Great. So if anyone listening in, they can they can see it. They can go check it out. But I'm putting I'm putting that link up on the page right now as we speak. Um, there and the other things, Hank. Um, I know we hadn't talked about it in a while. Uh, how are you looking with the book? Uh, you know, it's going to be the first of the year. Uh, a large part of the of the problem that I've had and my editor has had is we have uh, spent the past month. Uh, trying to get out the word to uh, to carriers, we managed to get from the agency all 10,000 carriers with conditional safety ratings and send them emails. And we've been uh, trying on behalf of these these small trucking associations to uh, uh, bring a presence to Washington, where frankly the uh, the big boys have have lobbyists and and PAC funds and do it in a whole whole different way. So uh, uh, we've been in there. We've been in there working hard in the trenches for actually no pay. And the book's gonna the book's probably gonna slide a month. But uh, uh, the, uh, you know I've kind of got a commitment that uh, it'll be here uh, uh, about New Year's. Okay, good good enough. And also uh, one thing that we talked about previously as well. Um, is there any more action coming down the pipe that we need to know about about this uh, URS situation that we talked about before? <laughs> yes, there is. Uh, in fact, uh, the agency is uh, going to put on test runs this week to finally let people see the new website is going to look like and how you're going to be able to manipulate it. One of the things that people need to know is if you're going to file an application for new authority, I'd say get it filed before uh, December 16th because I think the new website could very well be like Obamacare. It could come crashing down because there hadn't been a whole lot of previous testing of it. One of the issues that new entrants will have, because it's only really going to be uh, applicable for new entrants starting on the 16th of this month, <clears throat> is that you're going to have to be uh, computer literate. And, you know, I would guess that most of the people that are on the line, by the very fact they know what a podcast are, are not going to have any problem. But the agency, by its own acknowledgement, says that 16% of the applicants to have the, the computer skills or the access to file their own applications uh, we have been meeting with them to say, well, look, uh, you know, in the past, uh, my law office has helped people get authority and, uh, you know, has got people to ask the question, well, do I need $750,000 worth of insurance or a million? What's really the difference? Do I need common or contract? Uh, just questions that uh, uh, the agency tries to provide answers to, but people are unsure about. They have said that, uh, uh, there will be a way for uh, uh, folks like me to help people do applications for them. And so uh, if people get uh, uh, their applications and need need help after uh, the second week in December, uh, because, you know, I, I'm in the airport, and some of the websites I can use and book my own travel on, and some I get absolutely lost on. If you get lost on or you need help, uh, with applications or, or uh, compliance, particularly the new carrier audit, you know, just because you get authority doesn't mean that you get to keep it. Uh, we're going to have uh, uh, services and products available to help. Cool beans. So with that said, we got about 10 minutes left in the show. Um, you want to maybe give out how people can get in, get in contact with you guys and maybe give out the uh, website information? Yeah, our website is transportationlaw.net. That's transportationlaw written together dot net. And uh, uh, there is a, 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 a subsidiary of a company that we're starting. It's called going to be called TransComply. It's T R A N S Comply written together C O M P L Y dot com. And we'll be rolling that out in the next couple of months, but it it will be kind of a one-stop shop for somebody who is getting started and, you know, they don't all, only have uh, 
this federal application. They've got the, the DOT number, uh, what will be the survivor ultimately of the 150, the UCR, the KY. Uh, you know, the, it's alphabet soup. A lot of guys uh, uh, understand it. Uh, uh, some have gaps in their learning. Uh, it's going to be kind of a soup to nuts thing. Okay, so now you're a carrier and you've got a DQ file. What, what, what is your checklist for your DQ file? Uh, you know, uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, a compliance aid uh, to to keep the uh, uh, the agency happy uh, to uh, uh, make an insurance filing that's that's savvy to uh, uh, basically establish best practices because. Uh, clearly, uh, you know, we believe that the uh, motor carrier industry has been and will continue to be uh, uh, an economic engine for small businesses, but it's under great pressure, and uh, we're going to need to have people in the corner of small businesses to see that, that you know, that is done. There, there are a few people doing it, but, uh, uh, you know, unless... Uh, Unless we organize better, uh, it's ultimately going to be that everybody has to be employed by the man, and that's that's not necessarily the American way. Right, because it definitely seems like with all the different regulations coming down, and you know, um, we're just getting squeezed on every end, and and that's one of the things that um, you know there seems to be a ton of apathy in the trucking community. And one thing that we got to kind of do is, you know what I'm saying, not really trying to get into anybody else, anybody's uh, one particular politics, but we have to become more involved in our interest as, as business owners and start taking interest in, and holding these people's foot to the fire to say, Hey, you guys are you're squeezing us a little bit too much on, on this right here. You got to back off or, or, or at least cause uh, the one thing that really, yeah. like I spoke, I was I spoke sitting, about I was earlier, that, that really concerns me. Yeah, I was the sitting at the table really today. The one thing that really concerns me is, is yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just saying I was sitting at a table today uh, with uh, about 12 uh, trucking company owners, and I'd say the average size of the trucking company is 25 or less. Uh, and we started talking about compliance and uh, I, you know, uh, one guy came up to me and he says, Hank, I can't even keep up with all of these acronyms. You know, you got, right. you got SMS, you got CSA, you got CVSA, you, uh, you know, you can just start ticking them through KYU, uh, or you can make a list of all of the regulations that a guy who is, uh, a, you know, a, 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 a going to be a good operator because he's. Our company owner, because he's uh, uh, he knows the rules of the road and he's safe and he's got good business skills, but all of a sudden he's got 18 regulatory uh, hoops he's got to go through, and some of them are new to him. And you know, we're just thinking that at that point he, without having to pay lawyer fees, going to need quick access to uh, uh, a, 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 a manual. That'll, that'll that'll help him figure out in some kind of logical uh, uh, forum what what he has to do to to start up and to get into compliance, get through the new carrier audit, uh, how to uh, 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 monitor his compliance, and then also, as you say, uh, to take a lot of the mythology out of it. You know, uh, this ELD. Uh, it's going to hit about, it's supposed to be a final rule, but there's going to be appeals and things because uh, they've got to address a bunch of issues and get their technology straight and give us a two-year phase-in period. And look how that's worked on CSA 2010. We're 2015, and we ain't got a final rule. So, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, I I think we've got to be prepared but uh, uh, with this agency, I have stopped this idea about saying, well, anything is definitely going to happen next month. We went to Washington in August to meet with the OMB because we were told that they were about to drop the safety fitness determination. 
we like to think that maybe we convinced them to send it back to the drawing boards. But, you know, September became October, October become November, and nobody has seen it yet. So uh, <clears throat> just, a, just, a pointed, uh, just a pointed news update uh, of, uh, you know, here's, here's where you are with the regulations is something that a uh, small carrier who, who can't be part of a state trucking association or, or, uh, or uh, you know, some, some other uh, association, uh, you know, can, uh, can still stay uh, up to date when he, when he gets off the road or, uh, you know, using uh, uh, things like this, like a, like a podcast and like the, the Internet to uh, uh, get information in accordance with his time, not necessarily when the convention is being held. Well, the thing that gets me, Hank, is that, you know, regardless of what which side of the political side you fall on, whether you be Republican, Libertarian, or Democrat, it, that all of them seem to always talk about small businesses being the backbone of America. And, and what is small business other than the small trucking company? Um, I mean, that is, that's, that's, you know, as they say, that's as American as you can get. Uh, with, with well, Rico, that is ex- that is exactly why we went out and published a list of the carriers in each state that are listed as conditional, the number of employees they had, and that's why we sent letters on behalf of these trade associations to Democrats and Republicans alike who are making the decision, and the letter basically said. Attached here too is a list of in Pennsylvania, uh, or let's say Oregon, where we've got uh, uh, DeFazio, who's the Democratic chair and probably not a friend of of, uh, of, of pro-competitive things. Dear uh, Congressman DeFazio, attaches the list of the however many it was carriers in your state that employ uh, this many hundreds who will lose their jobs and their ability to compete if the bill is passed as written. I mean, you know, and what we tried to do is to then get people to call him. And I know with one particular congressman, he got, he got six calls from people that said, Hey, Bubba, I voted for you. Do you realize what this thing will do? Do you realize the system doesn't work and it's going to brand me? And, you know, you're pro-business, but, you know, It'll kill more businesses in our state than you can get if you go out and get a Volvo plant, you know? So, I mean, if if jobs matters, jobs in the constituencies matter, then what we need to do, uh, and you can get a list off of MCRR of who's on the committee, and lo and behold, if somebody happens to be in, <coughs> in, in Congressman Catco's district in Upper New York State, he needs to hear from you. Uh, he's on the committee. Uh, there are about uh, uh, 40 uh, people in the House and about uh, a dozen and a half in the Senate who are going to make this decision. And, you know, if you read the press, you'll find we're getting some press. But unfortunately, uh, in transport topics, you're going to hear them talking about double wides, double bottoms. Uh, why? Because that's what the big guys are pressing. They're, they're, running, they're running slow on this issue. This issue is kind of uh, uh, if we don't if we don't stand up and aren't counted, uh, you don't count on the ATA to represent us because it's not a hot button for their large members. They're right. not going to come out necessarily and oppose it. But if the congressman says, "Well, I don't know how to vote," how does the ATA uh, feel? They're going to get the impression that the trucking industry isn't all that alarmed about it. Right. Right. Well, Hank. We appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule going through the airport and, and coming on with us tonight. The hour just flew by, and we we, we getting ready to wrap yeah, up. Yeah, it here. did. So it we, did. <laughs> but we, once again, we appreciate you taking time out of your schedule, coming on to explain and break down some of these different nuances that uh, we need to be aware of. So we put links up to all that stuff on the Facebook page, and we want to thank uh, those who made us possible to do this podcast Kevin and Lisa Rutherford and the entire List Truck team. This is Rico Muhammad signing off live from Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks again, Hank. 
Good night, Thanks. everybody. Give Be me a call if you there. get a chance, Rico. I will do it. All right, thanks. Thanks for joining us on Rates and Lanes. If you like what you heard here, leave us a rating and review on iTunes or listen to our other shows at audioroad.letstruck.com. To get in touch with our tribe, call us at 855-800-FUEL. That's 855-800-3835. Thanks for joining us for the ride down the audio road.